featuring Cambridge University's Dr Chris Smith. This is Ask the Naked Scientists. Join the conversation. You're with Cape Talk. Welcome, Dr. Chris Smith. Welcome back. How are you today? How's the weather? Good morning, Clarence. Well, it's a lot warmer than when we last spoke. It's actually above zero now, which is giving me enormous cause for optimism. So it's not raining. It's not freezing. It's not snowing. It's just cold. But it is winter. And so we kind of take the rough with the smooth because we know that ultimately things are going to get better and hopefully pretty soon. How are you? I'm I'm really good. I'm re- we, we we've got a bit of a respite from the heat. We're very grateful for a bank of mist that is hanging over the city, um, and just bringing some kind of nice, cool weather. Let's go. I think straight to a voice note. Oh, Zuki's on the line. Hello, Zuki in Big Bay. Hi, Clarence. How are you? I'm always liquor. Thank you. Go ahead for Doctor Chris Smith. Hi, Doctor Chris. So I've got a, a colleague with whom we we tend to argue about the the, the air conditioning. So my question is, one of the things that actually determine a person's heat or cold tolerance, is it, um, is it genetic? Is it how they were, where they were raised? Is it the time of the year that they were born? What are the, what are the things that, that make our differences so vast? Hi, Zuki. Well, there's certainly a difference between men and women. And there was a paper published in one of the nature journals in, in recent years where people actually documented the fact that when we built buildings and offices and things like that, we tended to put the thermostats in there so they would be better for the men. And when you then have an office where it's more roughly 50-50, because most businesses are moving that way these days, you generally find that the women in the office are saying, this is far too cold. And the men say, it's far too hot. So there does appear to be a difference if you're a man or a woman. Now, that could be partly because of what people wear, because men tend to wear suits in the office. Women tend to wear skirts or historically did. So women have more exposed parts of the body from which to lose heat. So that could be part of it. But we also think an important part of it is just body size. If you're bigger, then you've got a higher metabolic rate because you've got more lean tissue if you've got more lean tissue you're burning more calories if you're burning more calories you're converting more heat and every time you move around you're using and therefore wasting more energy because your muscles are not efficient to move around therefore you're producing more heat when you when you're active so those things mean that men probably make more heat and have more heat to get rid of so therefore tend to feel less cold less often than women do but the flip side is It's also how well covered you are, because we know that the amount of subcutaneous fat you have also affects how fast you lose heat. And on average, women have more subcutaneous fat than men do. And so there will be some women who are much better covered than some men. So there are going to be men who say they feel colder than the women do. So you can see why this is complicated. There's also almost certainly a genetic element to this. And there's also a habituation element. People who've grown up in colder areas tend to become better and better adapted at tolerating the cold or tolerating the heat compared to people who've grown up or 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 lived for a long duration in other climes. And we know that when people want to train for a race, for example, I've got friends who run marathons professionally, and they they have told me that certainly you go to a hot place and train in the heat because you can adapt your sweating system to become much better at sweating more efficiently. You increase the volume of sweat you can produce, and this increases your rate of cooling, and that means you can tolerate running hotter because you can get rid of the heat faster. So there are ways that you are naturally, because of your sex, more or less tolerant at different temperatures. 
There are differences in the environment and what you wear, which affects how well you are going to fit or how, how well you can tolerate the temperatures. And then there are adaptations that we make as, as human beings, which will also affect how well we handle the heat or otherwise. Let's go to that WhatsApp line. Joe, let's find out what's there. Hello, this is Sarwan from Fishhook. A question for uh, Chris. What is ultra-processed food? Please define it. And why is it uh, unhealthy for you? Thank you. Bye. Hot topic, this one. And ultra-processed food, I think, was one of the most commonly looked up or used words, certainly in, in my country in 2023. And it was it was because people began to, to take a very good look at the labelling on the foods and the things we're eating every day. And they looked also at the expanding waistline of the world. More than half the world population is obese now uh, or, or getting that way. And it's happened very, very quickly. It's not that we're genetically programmed to become obese. It's that we have the genetic potential to become obese, but something changes in the environment that means those genetic potentials are manifest. So what has changed is the way we're eating and what we're eating largely and if you look at what's in many many foods these days simple unadulterated unaltered foodstuffs are uncommon in our diet much less common than they used to be so the definition of ultra processed foods is you look on the label and if you can find that the ingredients in your foodstuff have a range of different additives things that wouldn't normally be there things that have been added to change the characteristics of food then that fits the definition of ultra processed sugars if they're added ultra processed if you're taking instead of mayonnaise which would normally be oil and eggs and you're using some mixture of carbohydrates that bind lots of water and give you something that has the consistency of mayonnaise but isn't real mayonnaise it's ultra processed and you don't have to look very far before you see that the vast majority of the people who are listening to this program will be eating quite a lot of this stuff which is mass produced made in such a way as to make maximum profits for the people who manufacture it but with the least thought given to our overall health in mind, that's what we're all consuming. And we all think that this is heavily contributing to the fact that a significant number of people appear to be seduced by its effects, which means they eat too much and they put on weight. Because at the end of the day, ultra-processed foods are foods that make it very, very nice to eat that food, very, very easy to eat that food, and also in part, because they're so easy to eat and so quick to eat, huge numbers of calories, which leads to us overeating. A good example, some breakfast cereals. The amount of energy in some of these breakfast cereals, you can shovel into your mouth more than twice as much as you should be eating at that time of day because the cereals make it really, really easy to do it. And you want one simple example to think of? Take an apple. How long does it take you to eat an apple? It will probably take you about five to ten minutes to eat an apple, depending upon how keen you were. You could drink the equivalent number of calories that there are in a whole bag of apples if you just pick up a glass of fruit juice from the apple the apple juice, pour it in the glass, and in under a minute, drink the equivalent of seven apples. The fruit juice has been ultra-processed. The apple is not. we got to get that sound, that, that little light bulb moment. That was another one of them. Thank you, Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist. Let's go uh, for another voice note. Hi, good morning, Clarence, and welcome back to Dr. Chris Smith there. Flores here from Booster. Uh, Clarence, what I would like to know, swallows or swifts, where do they go after our summer and how do they get here? And um, 
Is it the same ones that's coming back or <laughs> is it the kids, the youngsters that's coming back? And why do they make so much effort to build a nest? Yes, that's my question. Have a mm. good weekend. Bye-bye. Thanks. I was going to say they go back to London, Dr. Chris. Yeah, they do. They do. They they are migratory birds and they have evolved to have a season where there's plenty of food, the conditions are good to reproduce and so on in one terrain, and then they spend the rest of the year in a different geography where those conditions are also ideal for continuing their life, where it would be too harsh to stay in the other environment. They've evolved to do this because it's in their interest to do so. Everything happens for a reason, and these animals have evolved to do this because their numbers, their population, is best suited and best benefited by having that migratory behaviour. Other birds, of course, don't do that, and swallows and swifts are not alone in doing that. The Arctic tern is probably the most travelled bird on Earth. Those those birds actually travel thousands, in fact hundreds of thousands of miles, kilometres. Uh, they could get to the moon and back, no problem, in terms of how far they fly over just a short lifetime. So the reason they do it is because the opportunity is afforded to them to have the best prospects for reproduction and survival. And by going to different geographies at different times of the year, you can exploit different niches and different surfeits of, of food and other things that are available to you, which you wouldn't be able to access if you just stay put in one place. There is a wrinkle here, though, which is these animals have evolved to do this over thousands to millions of years. And they've been doing it for thousands to millions of years. But unfortunately, climate change is happening far more rapidly than those timescales. So many of these animals which have these entrenched behaviours, which they have learned, they learn off their parents, they also innately know how to navigate over these long distances probably using a range of different cues, including visual cues, but also they can probably see the Earth's magnetic field and they use it like a visual compass that they can follow by seeing the lines of the magnetic field inclination. But as climate change kicks in, what it's doing is shifting the seasons in the areas that these birds migrate between. And so they're arriving when their body clock and their seasonal clock is telling them they should be arriving. But but if climate change has caused uh, a boom in the insect numbers and the sun warmed everything sooner than it should have done, they can arrive and all the food is gone. And this can have enormous consequences for their reproductive prospects. So we're seeing quite bad impacts on the populations of some of these migratory birds, which are mistiming their arrivals and departures because of the effects of climate change. Okay, that was really interesting indeed. Uh, plenty of voice notes. Let's go back there, Joe. Hi, good morning, Clarence. Good morning, Dr. Smith. Um, tell me, is it true that parrots don't have taste buds? And if so, does that include all feathered friends? Um, yeah, I'm just curious. I'd like to know. Thanks, guys. Great show, Clarence. Cheers, John Kelzerber. Bye. Hi, John. Well, I don't know about the rest of the taste bud repertoire, but birds certainly have a good sense of smell and they use that to find things they want to eat or not eat. I would think it'd be very surprising if they weren't capable of determining what they're putting in their mouths and if they want to eat it or not, because this is one of your primary defences against things that might poison you. One thing birds definitely can't taste, though, is chilli and chilli peppers. And this is why some people put chili pepper ingredients like capsaicin into food for things like chickens because the chickens will quite happily eat the spicy food 
but because they can't taste it, they don't have the receptor that capsaicin normally activates to give you the burning sensation, whereas rodents and things that might try and steal the chicken food can taste that and they would definitely avoid it. And this is actually why chilli peppers have evolved to be the way they have. They're nice and bright so birds which see colours better than we do can see the bright chilli peppers and go and eat them. They'll then swallow the seeds because they don't have teeth to munch them up rodents would eat the seeds and would destroy them and get the proteins out in the process the birds fly off and poop out the seed somewhere else and that's the plant's means of dispersal so it's it's built into the plant to have a deterrent that stops animals that would destroy its seeds from eating it by being spicy but encouraging other animals that won't destroy the seeds and will help to disperse the plant they're encouraged to eat it so I don't think it's entirely true to say birds don't have taste buds, but they're certainly not susceptible to the effects of capsaicin. I'll have to go and check if they can taste other things like saltiness, but I'd be very surprised if they can't, for the obvious reason that if you eat stuff, you need to know it's safe to put in your mouth, and smell alone doesn't always do that. That's why we have taste buds that enable us to determine some of the strong flavourants in foods that might be a guide towards whether it's good to eat or not, and I suspect birds are not that different, but I'll check that and come back next week with the definitive answer it's a church bell maybe it shouldn't be a church bell um but that was really interesting an answer as well albeit that there's some outstanding information um especially about the chilies wasn't that just okay let's go to another voice note um, hello christmas my name is keith all i want to know is what is dry ice and how it is different from normal ice and why is it so dangerous if it, uh, i think it can explode Hello, Keith. Dry ice is frozen carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is the gas that we breathe out. It's a gas in the air currently at quite low concentration but rising because of us burning fossil fuels. But if you collect the carbon dioxide and cool it, eventually, at down about minus 60, minus 70, something like that, it forms a solid. And that solid looks like an ice cube. And if you then warm it up again, it turns back into gaseous carbon dioxide and that's where the idea of explosions comes from because if you put that stuff into a container that's sealed and it then warms up inside the container as it goes from a solid into a gas when you turn a solid into a gas solids take up a lot less space in fact they probably when they turn into a gas take up between 500 and a thousand times more space as a gas than as a solid so the pressure goes up inside the, the the vehicle or vessel that's got the dry ice in it and it can reach the point where it will explode so that's pr probably where you're thinking about that where people often see dry ice being used is in stage and magic effects where if you take one of these pieces of carbon dioxide that's frozen dry ice and you drop it into water the water causes the dry ice to sublime go from that solid into the gas very quickly indeed and it boils inside the water throwing off a mist of of cold water above the water surface and these droplets that uh, basically form a mist and that's where we often see dry ice being manifest but that's water vapor that you're seeing it's not actually the carbon dioxide that's doing that it's the carbon dioxide is the solid stuff it's uh, looks like a giant white ice cube to be honest i think one last one uh, dr chris smith and maybe we're gonna need a, a shortish answer if it's even possible Good morning clarence and dr smith a quick question how do birds talk i've got a parakeet and he chats like there's no tomorrow uh how do they learn it and how do they know when to say the right stuff at the right, right time? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm just curious. Thank you. This is Jason here from Buckingham.
there was a terrific story in one of our national newspapers yesterday. Someone had written in one of the letters to the editor, and they said that uh, they had at the end of their road a retired army major who was terribly nice and terribly friendly. But when the lady had a baby, she would take to walking the baby in the pram down the lane. And every time she went past the major's house, she got wolf whistled. And she found this offensive and decided she would avoid walking that way. Uh, Later on, she found out the man had died and took to walking down the lane again, but still got wolf whistled and realised it wasn't him. Someone then said he had a minor bird and it was his pet. And it was the bird that was whistling at the lady going rather than the man. So she'd been inappropriately (laughs) blaming this poor man who had done nothing wrong at all. Birds love sounds. They communicate with sounds they use sounds to subvert and imitate there are some birds that make the sounds of other birds to ward off predators into thinking there's a bigger bird that's going to come and get them so birds take sound very seriously it's a main means of communication defense and communication for them in in many respects and so therefore they have evolved to have very very good hearing systems and very good vocal systems and so they produced the noises they make in much the same way we do they funnel and control the flow of air from their lungs out over the uh, oral cavity and by changing the shape of the oral cavity the beak and the tongue and other bits of the the mouth parts, they can change the resonances that are created, and this amplifies certain sound frequencies and suppresses the loudness of others, and that enables them to reproduce a whole repertoire of different sounds, and because they have evolved to learn sounds from other birds around them, they're really good at taking a sound and imitating it. It's part of their nature. They learn their own songs that way from their parents and then adapt them a bit, they, they learn from the, from their peers. So it's not that surprising that when you have some of these birds in uh, close proximity to us and the sorts of noises we make, they also learn to imitate them. We're going to have to rest it there. Big thank you to Dr. Chris Smith, the naked scientist, every Friday just after 9.30 right here on Views and News. <laughs> 